March 17, 2019. The only Nationals baseball podcast you'll ever need returns for another thrilling installment. Today's topics. With Michael A. Taylor's sideline, is it time for a man, a plan, an outfielder? Spanama? And baseball's got a whole new set of rules for us to talk about. From Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's Jacob Rash. From Boston, Massachusetts, it's Johnny Rash. This is the Rashcast with Jake and John. Welcome to another episode of the Rashcast with Jake and John. I'm Jake. I'm John. Uh, so we're still in the middle of the dregs of spring training. Uh, Although we do have baseball this week. Real, actual baseball. At 5.35 in the morning. Are you planning on staying up? I will stay up. up or wake up. I haven't decided which yet. I yeah. think probably wake up. Yeah. Even I'm not crazy enough to stay up till 5.35. Well, not even stay up till 5.35. It would be staying up until 9 a.m., getting an hour of sleep, maybe, and then going to my class at 10.20 a.m. So I don't think I'll be doing that. No. Uh, but regardless... Uh, the nice thing about getting towards the end of spring training is that the games more and more start to resemble actual baseball. For instance, yesterday, we saw Max Scherzer pitch six innings of nine strikeout, one run, three hit ball, which was fun. Yeah. Uh, he went 87 pitches, so it was almost like a real game. He'd probably go another inning in real life. Probably another two innings, actually, in real life. At 87 pitches? I don't know. Uh, but then we saw the progression of, uh, Kyle Bearclaw, Trevor Rosenthal, and then, uh, Sean Doolittle to protect a 5-1 lead. They didn't do that, but that doesn't really matter because it's spring training. The, the thing I'll say about Rosenthal, not Rosenthal, Bearclaw, uh, I have nothing but good things to say about Rosenthal right now. He looks like his stuff is all the way back. Uh, not concerned about him. It looks like that investment is going to be a good one. The thing about it is that uh, that contract is so incentive laden that you know if he performs like you expect him to, it's not a bargain. It's fifteen million dollars. Uh, but uh, as far as Rosenthal, I did it again. As far as Bearclaw goes. Uh, he is never going to be the kind of relief pitcher that you feel comfortable pitching or watching pitch. Uh, he's got a fastball that averages around 93 miles an hour. It's 91 to 95. He's got three different pitches, uh, none of which he throws for strikes consistently. Uh, he strikes guys out, but he also walks guys at a ridiculous clip. Uh, he's a lot like A.J. Ramos and uh, Drew Steckenrider as well. The Marlins seem to have a, a history of creating these relievers with middling stuff and high walk rates who seem to get outs regardless. But uh, you're never going to feel comfortable with Kyle Bearclaw on the mound. He'll get the job done, probably, but uh, it's still going to be nerve-wracking. And then there was Doolittle yesterday. Uh... Yeah, don't put any stock into that. If he comes out in the regular season throwing 89 miles an hour uh, and blowing saves, put stock into that. But he's a closer. 
I wouldn't worry about it just yet. He also said post game that he was working on more off speed stuff that game, so he's definitely working through some stuff, um, trying stuff out, <clears throat> and and working through some dead arm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was the first outing where he had really had to work. He got over twenty five pitches, and it just seemed like he ran out of gas. It's whatever. I wouldn't worry about it. We got plenty of time. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not like it takes a lot to get a reliever into game shape, no. uh, which is another you know reason probably not to be concerned about signing a guy like Kimbrel this late in the season or spring season. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's still plenty of time for a guy like him to get into game shape. Uh, speaking of signing relievers, uh, the Nats added Tony Sip this week, and. That's fine. Yeah, it's, He's, a, it's a nothing. It's a good signing. It's definitely better than going with what we had, um, especially with the lack of depth that we have in the bullpen. Um, right. But he's he could be interesting. I mean, in a in a division where you have Robinson Cano, Freddie Freeman, and now Bryce Harper, um, you know, a, a loogie is definitely valuable. You see other teams t- uh, who signed uh, lefties. The Braves signed Eric Flaherty this offseason. Um, the uh, Mets signed Justin Wilson this offseason. So, most oh, of these Wilson's a, Wilson's a guy with reverse, reverse splits. splits. Yeah, but but they uh, will, yeah, but the, the other teams are adding up on on lefties because they know this is a division with big lefty bats, and I think it was definitely a wise move for us. Without you know, without spending that much money, you know, one million dollar deal. And adding Tad Tony Sip. There really is no. It's not worst case scenario. He doesn't work out, and we can cut him because he's not worth much money. So, it's a good signing. He was good last year. Bad two years in a row before that, but hopefully he can. I mean, the, the curious thing is that he really does not throw a ton of innings. He's he's one of the the last true loogies out there. I mean, he threw. He had fifty four games pitched last year, thirty eight and two thirds innings. That's not. Not a lot of innings, uh, and this team really does need relief innings. Uh, the interesting thing about Sip, as you said, is that he was very bad in 2016 and 17, uh, but very good last year. Uh, and uh, he strikes out a fair number of hitters over the past five year, years in his career. Since he's been in Houston, he's striking out around 10 batters per nine. Uh, which is very good, even in this era. Uh, he's been really all over the map, uh, peripheral-wise. Uh, 2015, a 293 FIP. Uh, 2018, a 241 FIP. Those were the two years where he was very good. And then the two years he was bad in 16 and 17, the FIPs matched. It was you know over 6 and over 5. So it, it's not like... You know, you you would think that maybe it was some sort of sample size issue because he pitches so few innings, but no, he really was that bad in 16 and 17 and that good in 18. I don't know what that means. Uh, probably nothing. Uh, he's a volatile pitcher, throws a, not a ton of innings. He's not that interesting a guy, but the Nets certainly needed, you know, the, the right now the roster construction or the... the uh, Construction of the bullpen was, you know, you had two lefties, one of which was the closer, and one of which was Matt Grace, who is more of a long man in the way he's used, 
uh, so you probably weren't going to bring him in for matchups. But Sip, in Sip, you have that matchup lefty. Yeah. Uh, and now I saw some speculation when they signed him that uh, that was it for their chances of signing Craig Kimbrell. The truth is Tony Sip isn't going to stop them from signing Craig Kimbrell. The, the two have very little to do with one another. But uh, I don't think that there's really much of any chance that the Nats are going to end up with Kimbrel. They just, they seem, no, they, not ever. If, if yeah. The problem was that they were never going to exceed the luxury tax threshold for Kimbrel, then it just, it wasn't going to happen. There's no way to make it work otherwise. Even if you restructured Zimmerman's deal, there just probably isn't enough space to get, get it done. Yeah. Which is a shame. Uh, because, like we said a couple of times, it's a shame to build a $200 million roster and then have that money be sunk because you weren't willing to spend $215 million. Uh, but that seems to be where the Nats are at. So, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know who's going to sign Kimbrel. I think... I don't think he's signed until June at this point. There's no way. You can't... You can't have a baseball season without the best closer in the sport. That's just so weird. I just don't see any team that's remotely tied to him at this point. But there's every team can use him. He's not he's not a luxury. He's not, you know, he's not something that that should be out of bounds for all these teams. He's the best closer in baseball, possibly in baseball history. Anyway, we've we've talked about that a lot, but mm -hmm. it's just weird. And it's and very frustrating. Got, you've got Keuchel and you've got Gio Gonzalez, you know, both very solid rotation options who are still out there. Uh, Gio's been tied to the Yankees a little bit, uh, which would be an interesting fit. I don't know how the city of New York would respond to Gio Gonzalez's style of pitching. Uh, I don't think it would be positive. But, uh, I mean, he gets the job done, and they have a small hole in the rotation to fill for a month. But at this point, it, it almost doesn't make sense to sign Gio because there's no way that he's ready for the start of the season. But that's what they And mean. the start of... Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they say that he's been throwing uh, seven-inning simulated games, so he doesn't necessarily need to build up arm strength but I mean at this point you would have him get one maybe two spring starts you'd think he'd need to go to extended spring for at least a, a week or so I don't know yeah uh regardless um the other big news for the Nats this week was that Michael Taylor uh trying to make and making a Sterling defensive play in center field uh, came up lame and on a fall uh, hurt his hip and his knee uh, and he seems like he's going to be out for an extended period of time. I've heard four to six weeks. Uh, I've heard it might be longer than that. So uh, regardless, he's going to miss some amount of time. Uh, and... You know, we talked about this a little bit, 
but the Nationals have this depth issue in the outfield where they essentially only had four usable outfielders. Uh, and now they have three. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, they, they lost the one that they could afford to lose the, mo- lose the most in Taylor. He's the backup fourth outfielder. But still, uh, they're very thin from an outfield depth perspective. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you're looking at Andrew Stevenson possibly is the, the best internal option. And Stevenson is not going to hit at a major league level. Uh, he's, he's just not that type of player. He's never hit in the minors. So uh, I'm not so confident. And then you can look. There are a lot of interesting external options, which, you know, we've talked about last week a bit. Not Carlos Gonzalez signed the last week. Adam Jones signed the last week. But apart from them, there's still Denard Spann, who we've talked about as a good fit. He can't play center as well anymore, but he could definitely fill in um, if need be for a game. He still hit well last year. I'm not sure what kind of contract he would get at this point. Uh, I would think a minor league deal because you know everyone else. I, I guess Jones got a major league deal, um, right? But Carlos Gonzalez got a minor league deal. Uh, well, I I don't think the the major versus minor league aspect of it matters as much as what they get on the contracts, you know, because uh, Carlos Gonzalez is assured to make the roster. Mm-hmm. Jones got a major league deal. He's making $3 million. Uh, Gonzalez has got a minor league deal. He's making two uh, if he makes the major leagues, but he will make the major leagues. There's, there's no question about it. If you've seen the Indians' outfield depth chart, Carlos Gonzalez is probably now their best outfielder. Uh, it's that grim. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I would imagine Span would probably be in somewhere of that range, which is way less than he deserves. The guy has had, uh, over the last three or so years of his career, I think uh, averaged a 110 OPS plus, and it's not like he's falling off. He's still that same player. Uh, he's not the same player he was defensively. Uh, but the Nats, you know, for their purposes, as a fourth outfielder, they don't need him to be 2013 Denard Span in center field. Uh, I mean, if, if he needs to fill in for a couple games in center, he can do that, no problem. It's not an issue. I mean, he's, he's not going to be great, but he certainly won't be unplayable out there. I mean, and, and considering that one of the other options they're looking at is Wilmer Defoe in center field, I think you can count on Span to be better than that. Yeah. And so, you know, this it's, it's good that this happened now as opposed to later in the season. Um, Maybe. If the Nats do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and they certainly can. They certainly have... There, there are certainly players available who can help them. And, they, uh, and, and still if, allow them to stay under the luxury tax, too. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure where they are. As a, you know, It's really hard to say uh, where they are in terms of the luxury tax. I think the best reading of it has them something like $10 million under right now. But considering that Trevor Rosenthal has, you know, so much in terms of incentives in his contract, uh, as does Anibal Sanchez, and both look like, you know, at least from the spring, like they're in prime position to, you know, make good on those incentives. It's hard to say how much luxury tax space they really have. And they, I mean, the, the honest-to-God truth is, 
they might end up going over accidentally, which would make their pussyfooting around on Kimbrel even stupider. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, it's... With Span, uh, I think he's a very good fit. I think he makes a ton of sense. And, you know, if the Taylor injury forces them to build outfield depth by bringing in external options, someone like Span, then on net it's a good thing for the Nats because once Span comes or once uh, Taylor comes back from the injury, now they have real outfield depth. Uh, I don't know what they would do then. It's not like it makes a ton of sense to carry both Span and Taylor. Mm-hmm. Although I think you can find a way to make it work. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you. Yeah, I don't know how you carry both actually. You have. Let's see how the bench would be. You'd have Adams. I mean, you don't know what the injuries would be either at that point. So. Right. Of course. I mean, you got to assume by May at least one player will be down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of ways to make it happen. You know, if if Zimmerman goes down, Adams slides in, then Kendrick's the backup first baseman, and then you can have Span. Uh with a like a Kendrick Defoe backup catcher span Taylor outfield or uh, bench alignment. Uh, there are there are ways to make it work. Uh, it's a good problem to have, and they would confront it when it happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, if this injury forces the Nats to realize that their outfield depth is not sustainable over the course of a long season and actually make a move, then it's fine. But if they don't, then they're hyper thin. Uh, so uh, we can't really say. I mean, it, again, this is all we really have to talk about uh, in terms of Nationals news. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's the middle of spring training. And apart from injuries, nothing noteworthy should be happening. Uh, I mean, the Nats have had a pretty quiet spring, which is good. That's what you want. Yeah. Uh, so the other big news that happened this uh, this year or week. this week, excuse me. Yes, also this year. Yeah, true. This week includes this year, doesn't it? It does. Uh, uh, is the the new rule changes, and I'm going to pull them up so that we can talk about them yeah. line by line. So we have one of the first rule changes is probably the biggest one is the elimination of the trade deadline, uh, the the August waiver deadline. Sorry. Yes, uh, and I have opinions about that. Uh, I do. I have opinions about everything. It's one of the things that makes me me. But uh, I think that the big problem here is that you've got teams that are very risk-averse that if they have to make a decision in July about whether to contend or sell, they're going to sell in July because they're not going to have that option to wait an extra two weeks or four weeks and figure out, you know, where they actually stand. Like, look at the Nationals last year. Uh, from a perspective of a team that was right on the bubble of, of selling and uh, spending, you know, the Nats could afford to stand pat. Instead of you know making some sort of panic move, uh, they could stand pat, 
wait to see where they were in three weeks. And then when things didn't turn around, they could sell uh, on the waiver deadline, which is what they did. And it worked fine. Uh, they sold Murphy and Adams and Gonzalez. But now, and, and the Nats aren't really the best team to be using for this because the Nats aren't as risk-averse as so many other teams out there. But if you're a middling team with some talent to sell and uh, your choices are to either, you, you don't really have that option to stand pat anymore in July because there's, there's no way to fix that in August. Uh, if your options are to make a big splashy move and try and buy your way back into the pennant race and sell, if you're a risk-averse franchise, you're probably going to sell. However, but you look at the Pirates last year, you know, they were, you'd consider them a risk-adverse franchise, and they made a big splash of the trade deadline, getting Chris Archer. So, you know, I think you're going to have, it's going to go both ways. I think teams might be a little bit more willing to make a move at the deadline because they say this is the only time we can make a move if we want to contend this year. As opposed, I think the Nationals are a good way to prove that this necessarily... I, I wonder what would have happened last year if the Nats didn't have the option to trade in August. Uh, if they would have stood pat or would have sold. Uh, but I think that you look at... Yeah, you look at the Pirates who bought last year the deadline. Uh, I, I'm not so in... Like, I, I'm impartial to this rule, personally. I think we have to really see how it turns out for the first year. Before we can sure. really judge it, and I nah. think that it, it could go well, it could go poorly, but I think it's an interesting move. I don't really get why we're they're doing this. I don't know who really fought for this, the players or the teams, but sure, whatever. I'm not. I'm. I don't know. I can neutral. see a lot of negative effects to this, uh, but. I see your point that we should probably wait until it's implemented to judge it. I just, you know, I can see this being used as an excuse to sell. Uh, and I guess the reason that they did it is because the waiver process is so ungodly confusing. Uh, and no one really likes it. And players, I'm sure, don't like, you know, being told in August that they've been placed on revocable waivers and not having any idea, you know, if they'll be traded or not or what that means. So this gives more security to players uh, who know that if they're on a team uh, on August 1st, they'll be there on September 28th. I don't know. It's I can see why it happened. I'm just worried that there will be negative consequences to it. Yeah. All right, let's see. The next big rule is the change of the active roster, which will be enforced in the 2020 season. Uh, the active roster will change in the regular, in the regular season to 26 players. And there will no longer be a 40-man roster in September. It will be a 28-man roster. Uh, I, I like the 26th man. Uh, the other big part of that is that there's going to be a limitation on the number of uh, pitchers you can have. Now, we don't know what that number is because it's going to be uh, decided by the committee, the competition committee that was created, uh, but I would personally like to see it at 12. I imagine it'll be at 13. Uh, 
So that'll mean at least 13, possibly 14 position players on a roster at all times. Uh, and one of the things I like about this, especially if it's 14 position players, is I think you will see a return of the types of players whose jobs have been sort of absorbed by the expansion of the bullpen. Guys like designated pinch runners, designated pinch hitters, you know, guys like Terrence Gore and Lenny Harris might find jobs. Not Lenny Harris, because Lenny Harris is 50 years old, but a Lenny Harris type. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I like to see that kind of diversity of, of talent. You know, these sort of one-tool players, it was always fun to have them on the bench as opposed to an eighth reliever, which is never interesting. So I'm hoping we'll see that. I'm hoping we'll see this extra roster spot go to someone who's more interesting than another, you know, fireballing reliever. But, I mean, that remains to be seen, Yeah, obviously. I'm just interested in the uh, 28-man roster move. Um, I think there definitely was a problem in baseball with the 40-man call-up with, uh, you know, games just lagging in September, taking four hours. And that was ungodly bad. That was just bad. Oh, absolutely. It was unwatchable baseball in September, which should be the most exciting baseball. But I think what, you're, what the problem is going to be is that these cup of coffees for a lot of these young players where I think there's a lot of things that the union is doing right now which is harming a lot of the minor league players. Uh, and this is one of those rules. I think... I, I agree with that. I think the union uh, is really only fighting for the older players. And this, this elimination of the 40-man roster in September will reduce pay for a lot of minor league players who wouldn't get that major league service time earlier. Now, you know, I agree with that. But at the same time, I think that there was a middle ground here. I think that you could address the service time concerns and address the ungodly, unwatchable uh, September baseball issues. And the way I would have done that is you allow a 40-man active roster limit, but only 28 players are active on that active roster can be active yeah. for any one game. And yeah. obviously you, you write the rules so it can't be manipulated so that you just put your previous day's starting pitcher on the, you know, inactive roster, something like that. Uh, I guess what you could do uh, if you wanted to was make it so that everyone who was on the active roster on August 31st uh, had to stay there and then you make like a, a 14-man taxi squad, up to 14-man taxi squad, where you pick two players from that. Something like that. I don't know. There, there are ways that you could have made it uh, less manipulable. Obviously, it would be harder. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that this rule... I mean, I, I see why they did it, and this is much easier to legislate, you know, just making a 28-man roster than doing a taxi squad type thing. But I will miss, you know, cups of coffee for guys who had earned it, you know, as a reward. Because there's so many players out there who only ever got to see playing time, uh, you know, as September call-ups. It was, it was so nice to always see, like, 
one guy who was being rewarded for like 15 years in the minor leagues. You got a Jamie Romack or a, a Brandon Harper or Joe Bassenius. Thank you. That was all the guys I could think of. Uh, but uh, it, it's a shame that they're growing that kind of cup of coffee, which was really unique to baseball, is going to go away. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss that. I think that there was a way to save it and that they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the other part of that rule is that uh, they put a limitation on the ways that position players pitching can be used. Uh, you can't use a you can only use a position player to pitch uh, after the ninth inning or in a game where you're losing or winning by more than six runs. Uh, and now, in truth, this doesn't really change anything as to how position players will be used as pitchers as as it is right now. I think the the most egregious example from last year came in a seven-run game in the ninth inning when Joe Madden used Miguel Montero, or not Miguel Montero, I can't remember who, but one of the pitchers was Anthony Rizzo. Uh, but uh, he used them in a seven-run game in the ninth inning, and that was egregious. So this won't cover that. But it will prevent an enterprising Joe Madden type from realizing, hey, you know, if we pitch a position player in the ninth inning of a four-run game, we can maximize our win potential. And, you know, it, it'll just prevent more manipulation, which is always good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good rule. Uh, let's see yeah. what else. Other rules. They re-implemented the 15-day DL for pitchers, which wasn't really talked about. I'll be enforced in 2020, uh, which is a good rule. Just, you know, you don't you won't have the manipulation of the of the IL now. But it's only a good rule because people took advantage of the old rule. Yeah. You know, jerkbag teams like the Dodgers just, you know, manipulate. It was, it was a good idea to, incre- to decrease the, uh, the IL from 15 to 10 days. But then teams kept faking injuries and making stuff up and, and, basically ruined the rule for everybody else. So they had to do this. Uh, and that's what bothers me about all of this. You know, There's a difference between trying to find competitive advantage and willfully ignoring the spirit of the rules to get an advantage. Uh, and a, that's what teams like the Dodgers did. There's a lot of can, and sh- can versus should going on. Uh, I think there's, there's somebody... Some quote this week from an owner that was very much on the lines of, you know, we're not going to do this. We're not going to stop doing something because it's the rules don't say anything against it. And it, it's it's the idea, you know, you can do this, but you really shouldn't do it because, you know, I've said this before, but you're an entertainment industry. And this is just you're, you're ruining it. You're ruining you're ruining it for everyone. Don't be a jerk. Yeah, it's it's you know every single rule should come with like a an asterisk that just says you know you have to apply or you have to you know follow the don't be an asshole standard mm-hmm. uh, and you know people were dicks about the 
the 10-day IL, and so they had to change it back. Now, I mean, I think that's good that they did, but they shouldn't have had to because people should listen to the spirit of the rule instead of being douchebags. Uh, and then the, the one other rule that I want to talk about a little bit is this uh, $1 million home run derby thing. We, we have talked about the three-batter rule, which is the main talks of this, but we've talked about that before, so... Yeah, we talked about that briefly. Uh, Actually, you know what? Just to cover our bases here, uh, my feelings about the three-batter rule, like I said, I don't think it addresses the problem it was supposed to address, but I'm fine with it. It shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be that impactful. I think uh, if it prevents teams from rolling out, you know, one-batter appearances in the sixth inning, I'm good with that. I don't see any really bad negative consequences here. I agree. Uh, it should be fine. Yeah. But, uh, and then the ho- the home run derby being increased to $1 million, I'm very excited about. I am too. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of young players who really want to do it now because this is worth more than double their salary for some players. Uh, I was kind of shocked when Aaron Judge said he still was thinking about not doing it. Really? Well, he has a lot of yeah. endorsement deals, so he's got money still. But like guy like I mean, Ronald Acuna, Juan Soto, those guys, I would be very much. Oh man, I, I would love to see a matchup between Acuna and Soto in a in a home run derby. That would yeah. be so much fun. I mean, I think it's good for the sport too because you have these guys who are more willing to do it. These young guys who are going to be more willing to do it and build that brand for the younger generation of players. So if you I have, mean, look at the look at the roster last year for the home run derby. It was Bryce Harper and a bunch of meh. Guys, like mm-hmm. Max. Muncy. I mean, frankly, if they if they required that uh, Aaron Judge do it, like put in a rule that says Aaron Judge must participate, as must Giancarlo Stanton, like I think that would also save the home run derby, because yeah. those guys are awesome to watch. Like the the derby was invented for those two players, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think as it is, you'll have more interesting players compete, which is always good. Yeah. Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. This is uh, a good episode, I think, personally. Uh, wow. I agree, John. We'll be back next I think next we did our best work. We'll be back next week with an hour-long special episode during our baseball preview, our 2019 season preview. Uh, we'll probably break down the divisions, talk about which teams – do some hot takes on the season. You know, Make of, bold predictions. Bold predictions. Be a lot of, bold lot of fun. Bold and spicy predictions. Uh, so make sure to be on the lookout for that next week. But as for this week, that's the end of this episode. And that's the end of that chapter. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right. See you next week.